All right, everyone. I was going to make the, the crack, but of course I won't make it. Looks like most of the sheep arrived there on my right, but not as many as the goats, no. But I wouldn't say that. This group here, this must be limbo. What's that? I, I couldn't hear you. What? The goat has a question. What's your question, Melinda? Uh, I would like um, the discussion. The, what's the difference between prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers? Ah, from yesterday, what's the difference between prophets and evangelists, pastors and teachers, and so forth? Good. Um, it, it's from Ephesians chapter 4, and why don't you look at the exact text there? Ephesians chapter 4, and it is in verse 11, he himself, referring to Christ, gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints. Um, it's a lovely passage, and um, when you take it in the context of the entire New Testament record, the Gospels, as well as the book of Acts, and the Old Testament prophetic scriptures, <clears throat> part of what St. Paul is doing there is saying that there is essentially only one office of the word. Okay? In the Old Testament, prophets were called by God directly to proclaim his word. So you've got the preeminent prophet is Moses. Other prophets were called directly by God in the Old Testament. From them we have the prophetic scriptures. In the New Testament, Jesus called the 12 disciples who then became apostles upon kind of like you could say his ordination of them at the resurrection appearance. He breathes on them, receive the Holy Spirit. You'll see this shift in the Gospels from the word disciple to apostles. They are the ones sent out on Jesus' behalf. They're called directly by Jesus, just like the Old Testament prophets were called directly by the Lord. And what is their essential work? To proclaim Jesus' word. So in the Gospel of John, he will bring to your remembrance, the Holy Spirit, everything that I said to you. That doesn't apply first to us. It applies first to the apostles because they were the eyewitnesses and the ear witnesses. You know, they saw what Jesus did and they heard what Jesus said. Okay? Um, and so they are, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, which is not only spoken of in Second Peter and First Timothy, or Second Timothy but also by Jesus there in the upper room, the inspiration of the Spirit, bringing to your remembrance everything I said to you. So in this passage, notice the progression. Uh, all such individuals, whether it's prophets of the Old Testament or, or apostles in the New, are sent by Christ. He gave them. So Christ himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets. Now notice the word ordering there is not insignificant. Because the apostles are 
first in the church. It, we know how to interpret the Old Testament through the lens of the apostolic scriptures. And now it's not that it contradicts the Old Testament, it doesn't, but it's the apostolic word that gives clarity to the prophetic word. And then all other I wanted the national anthem this morning. <laughs> Everyone after the apostles and prophets, every man in the office of the Word of God, the office of the Holy Ministry, has only the authority that the apostolic and prophetic scriptures give to them. So while the prophets and apostles were called directly by God and inspired by the Holy Spirit, and we have the prophetic and apostolic scriptures, I'm in the, off, I'm in, it's the apostolic office of the Word, but I'm not an apostle. My only jurisdiction is the apostolic and prophetic scriptures. That's the only authority I have. Um, evangelists were those who wrote under the authority of the apostles, like Mark and Luke. Mark wrote under Paul, uh, uh, Peter. Luke wrote under Paul. We also call missionaries oftentimes evangelists. That's in the broad sense. But in their narrow sense, it refers to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the broad sense, any missionary, okay? But still, what's the essential character? The office of the word, okay? And then the next phrase, uh, pastors and teachers, those are not essentially two different things, but how do they pastor or shepherd by teaching, okay? Uh, there, was, there was in the Missouri Synod a, where this was used to refer to parochial school teachers, but that's not it. It's, it's the teachers of the word, okay? A parochial school teachers have an office, but there's, their authority is derived from father and mother, not the office of the ministry, okay? So pastors and teachers, it's like an epexegetical chi I mentioned to you last week. Pastors, that is to say teachers, okay? Uh, so it's not two different offices again, it's, it's one office. Um, prophet, literally, speak forth the word. Apostles sent out on behalf of another. Evangelists, they are carriers of the evangel, the good news. Pastor, they shepherd by the word. Teacher, they teach the word. So you see how, how the terms all orbit around simply the concept of the office of the word of God, the office of the holy ministry. Does that help? Yes. Cindy. Talk about what? Well, they will say, like, in today's time, oh, this man is a prophet of God. He, he's a prophet. We should all listen to him because he is... Rich Berger is a prophet. Listen to him. Yes. Huzzah. Huzzah. Yes. Not in the sense of the Old Testament prophets or the New Testament apostles, no. Um, And the thing about the Old Testament prophets is their direct call from God was confirmed, like in the case of Moses, before Israel and Egypt through the signs and wonders that God performed. Okay? 
The other prophets in the Old Testament after were also confirmed in similar manner, but the first criterion for them was they had to agree with Moses. They could not deviate from that. Yeah, Joseph, Joseph Smith calls, falls under the category of quack. <laughs> well, he does. I mean, he does, because the thing about the, the New Testament, the New Testament apostles were also verified and given testimony to their authority publicly through the various signs and wonders that they were able to perform. Okay? Dr. David Scare wrote one of the most significant books for me to read early on in my ministry, late seminary, early ministry, the Apostolic Scriptures. And he talks all about the canon of Scripture and the significance of apostolicity. Susan? Cindy asked about there being no more prophets. And I think it depends on how you say prophets. Okay, yeah, I was going to say... Yeah, it, it, this goes back to the term evangelist, or sim, as an analogy. Evangelist, in the narrow sense, refers to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. In the broad sense, any missionary. Prophet, in the narrow sense, those called by God who prophesy under the inspiration of the Spirit, word of God, every word of which is true. Prophet, in the broad sense, refers to any Christian speaking forth the word of God, in that sense. But what they're speaking forth confessing is the prophetic and apostolic scriptures. So in Pentecost, which he's referring to, it's a quotation from Joel, your young men shall dream dreams and your old men shall, you know, your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Because the word itself literally means speak forth the word of God. So we're going to pray Psalm 122 and we're going to confess the passages of scripture from the catechism and we'll sing the hymn. That is a form of prophecy because we are speaking forth the word of God. But we've got this, we only think of prophecy as Susan Gelbach on the 14th day of July in the year 2030 shall levitate above the church and float away. You know, these kinds of predictive things. But as we noted when we looked at the Old Testament witness, most of that Old Testament history with the prophets, it was, a, it was essential Lutheran sermonizing. Law, gospel, call to repentance, proclaim forgiveness of sins. Okay. What's that? Oh, yeah, like yesterday's hymn. Um, which one? 682. You've got that. This is uh, uh, one of these ordination installation of a pastor's hymn, God of the Prophets, Bless the Prophet's Sons. Oh, which means, uh, Cindy, Melinda, the seminary is often nicknamed the School of the Prophets. Okay? So God of the Prophets, Bless the Prophet's Sons. So any pastor is a son of the prophet insofar as he is faithful to the prophetic scriptures. Elijah's mantle or Elisha cast. Remember how the, the, there was a transference. Each age its solemn task may claim but once. Make each one nobler, stronger than the last. 
Anoint them prophets, men who are intent to be your witnesses in word and deed. Their hearts aflame, their lips made eloquent, their eyes awake to every human need. Anoint them priests, strong intercessors they, for pardon and for love and hope and peace, that through their pleading guilty sinners may find Jesus' mercy and from sin release. Anoint them kings, yes, kingly kings, O Lord. Anoint them with the spirit of your Son. Theirs not a jeweled crown, a bloodstained sword. Theirs by sweet love for Christ a kingdom won. Make them apostles, heralds of your cross. Forth let them go to tell the world of grace. Inspired by you, may they count all but loss and stand at last with joy before your face. So, make them apostles, you know, that would be apostle in the broad sense. You know. I mean, Barnabas was referred to as an apostle, even though he wasn't in the narrow sense of having been chosen by Jesus directly, witnessed himself, but in the broad sense, sent out on Christ's behalf. So in that sense, every pastor is an apostolic preacher or a prophetic preacher. Okay, good. So we'll pray Psalm 122 responsively by half verse. And our hymn is 734 for the week. Psalm 118, this week in the table of duties concerning civil government is the... Um, is the section from the Table of Duties. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, died and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Psalm 122, 122. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. I was glad when they said to me, Let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem built as a city to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel. To give thanks to the name of the Lord. There thrones for judgment were set. The thrones of the house of David. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they be secure who love you. Peace be within your walls. And security within your towers. For my brothers and companions' sake, I will say for the sake of the house of the Lord our God. I will seek your good. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, 
is now, and will be forever. Amen. It is better to trust in the Lord than to put confidence in man. Merciful God, we humbly implore you to cast the bright beams of your light upon your church, that we, being instructed by the doctrine of the blessed apostles, may walk in the light of your truth and finally attain to the light of everlasting life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. From the Catechism Table of Duties, what does God's Word say of civil government? Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and he will commend you. For he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant and agent of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. The uh, verse 2 of Romans 13, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. We almost exclusively think of that in terms of we are citizens, rebellion against the civil authority is rebelling against God and therefore it brings judgment or punishment upon us. And that's true, that's what the passage says. But it also applies to the person who has the civil authority. He who rebels against the authority who is the civil authority's authority? God. God, ultimately. So the great despots, you know, pick your favorite despot. The great despots of the world have been given authority by God. That doesn't mean they are entitled to absolute tyranny. And when they exercise the, their authority tyrannically, they are rebelling against God who put them in that office and they bring judgment upon themselves. Um, who's your favorite tyrant of the 20th century? I don't know. Pol Pot. You think of, of Hitler? Um, you know, and what, what happened to those great, those quote, great despots? Finally, God's judgment came upon them. Okay? So we only tend to think is we, that these passages from St. Paul are not carte blanche, unilateral authority extended by God to them, which they then can use in whichever way, shape, manner, or form they see fit. Remember what the Apostle Peter said 
we must obey God rather than men. What's interesting about you know, the Nazi regime, the Stalinistic regime, these other regimes just in the 20th century, is the forbidding of Christians and of the church to exercise their religion freely. Okay, so on the one hand, the church and Christians do not take up arms against the civil authority. But on the other hand, neither do they obey the civil authority when the civil authority violates their conscience, their faith in Christ, what God has given them to be in charge over. Uh, this, then you have the, um, in China, um, forced sterilizations. Okay, that is, that is a governmental law. Forced sterilization. Ostensibly for the public good. Okay, so if you're a Christian, do you have the right under God to disobey that order, that law? Absolutely. Okay. So Mark asked the question, and so I went and ran this off. Uh, it was a statement that I prepared, and some of you, have, I think, have seen it, because I had it for anyone who wished to make use of it. Now, I'm going to preface my remarks here by saying this. I, listen carefully, I am not against vaccinations. That's not the point. I think probably, I don't, you don't have to raise your hand, but I think probably the majority of the folks in this room have gotten COVID-19 vaccinations. I'm not against vaccinations, but I am against governmental tyranny that usurps the right of the individual in terms of what they put in their bodies in terms of medicine. It's ironic, isn't it? that the pro-choice crowd, it's between you and your doctor, but not when it comes to the COVID-19 vaccine. Okay, so uh, this statement, we as confessional Lutheran Christians recognize the authority of civil government and employers to protect the God-given rights of individuals, including the religious liberty and freedom of conscience guaranteed to every citizen of the United States in the Declaration of Independence and the Bill of Rights, and which are clearly taught in God's Word. We believe that no government, employer, or individual has the authority or right to usurp the rights of another individual or bind an individual's conscience against their will. Such an act by government or an employer is an act of tyranny. Forced incarcerations of individuals based on ethnicity or religious beliefs, forced abortions, and forced medical procedures are but a few examples of such tyranny throughout human history. We believe that it is the individual and the individual alone who is given the right by God to determine the kind of health care they receive 
and what medicines they put into their bodies. The right to make such choices may not be infringed by governments or employers. Further, we believe that according to God's word and under the Constitution of the United States, employees may not be discriminated against or lose their employment for exercising their religious freedom and the God-given right to care for their own bodies as they determine. Terminating employment under these circumstances is a violation of human rights and a denial of individual freedom. And I might add, it's an act of tyranny. See? The exercise of religious liberty and the decisions and actions that an individual makes according to his or her sincerely held religious beliefs are not validated by whether a government or employer agrees with those decisions. So that's the statement. There's another short paragraph uh, under it. But please understand, it has to do with what God has entrusted to the individual. And so that becomes a, a religious belief, you know, as a, as a Christian, this is what I believe. And the free exercise clause in the Constitution acquiesces or acknowledges that. Now, if the Bill of Rights didn't exist, it wouldn't change the reality. In other words, we don't have, we don't have freedom of conscience and the free exercise of our religion because of the Bill of Rights. We have it because of God and because of God's word. Okay, so Cindy? We have a question about this passage as it relates to the Revolutionary War. Was it, because this is something that my kids asked me years ago and I didn't have the answer to, was it right for the Pilgrims to revolt against England and bring up arms against them? Well, I think that there, a case can be made against it. Yes, okay? I, I, I do. Um, having said that, God has throughout human civilizations, you, you can't go back, you know, back, 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 and find, because governments and kingdoms rise and fall. And this is in part a part of God's providence. It would have been more like, the question is more appropriate, should, to what degree should Christians as Christians or the church as church participate in that, okay? So um, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod did not exist in 1776, okay? But what is the posture of churches then? And it should have been to deplore war, to deplore bloodshed, and so forth. And so what does the church do? The church serves to the best of her capacity, respecting the civil authorities if it's England, and after that isn't England anymore, it's the colonies, then we honor and respect yeah, the, the newly formed United States. Okay, so it, things change. Yes, Petrina. Just let me say one more thing. It's just like it doesn't alter the fact. Let's say you were conceived out of wedlock without uh, the benefit of your parents being married. It doesn't then take away the calling from God for you to honor your father and your mother. 
They're not even married. I mean, that's not true of Cindy. Okay, but I, I'm just giving that example. See, so, so those relationships, I mean, you are still their daughter, if you were in that, and there would still be that obligation, regardless of how it was that they came about being your father and mother. So in the same way, we can't say, like, let's say, since I think that the Revolutionary War was unjust, it was, and, and I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not here to litigate that. Okay, I'm, I'm not here to litigate that at all. I, I just simply said the case could be made. But that doesn't then call, that's not the trump card for your disobedience, you know. Since I don't believe it was legitimately established when they went to war against King George, therefore I will not honor the civil authority. Yeah, I mean, you, you can't, you honor them, but you don't deny your confession of faith. Those are two different things. Okay? And that's what Jesus said, you know, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. I mean, was the Roman government legit, or was it the Greek, the Greek empire prior to that that was legit? and the Roman government conquered it? Or was it the Persian Empire that was legit? You see what I mean? I mean, which is the whole problem with reparations. It's not the whole problem, but it's one of the big problems with reparation, you know? The only one who's gonna right all the wrongs at last is God at the end. All right, let us pray. What's that? Oh, Katrina. So, Petrina, sorry. At the end of your statement, you mentioned that it's unconstitutional for government to mandate the uh, vaccination. As it comes, when you regard the companies that are now acquiescing to this, Not that money or favored status has anything to do with any of that, but no. go ahead. Right, but as an employee uh, I think you, you could refuse it, but it, you could lose your job, as you mentioned. Correct. Well, again, just because I'm a father, let's say I'm Caleb's father, should he honor me? Yeah. And just because I'm Caleb's father, does that mean I have the right to beat him to a pulp? No. no. So again, this is why I'm, I'm talking about, that's why I made the, uh, the reference to verse 2 of Romans 13. He who rebels against the authority. That includes the authority rebelling against the authority that put them there, which is God. See, the, the government that, that, um, that disdains justice and truth, that perverts justice, will not long endure. So the seeds for, I would argue, you know, the disintegration of the American experiment are all there. 
in that type of injustice. Okay. Which is not intended to depress, but to, to show that the, our, the kingdom of God is not of this world. And so we have a greater kingdom. All right, let us pray. Heavenly Father, give us civil authorities who will serve with integrity and faithfulness for the maintenance of justice, the punishment of evildoers, and for the praise of those who do well. Grant all Christians faith in your gracious providence so that we might honor the civil authorities and contribute to the common welfare of our nation. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Heavenly Father, we commend to you Mark Ratzinger as he continues to struggle with back issues and prepares for an eventual surgery. Gary, diagnosed with bladder cancer. Reverend Dan McMiller with multiple myeloma. Christy Schmidt, recovering from a minor stroke. Aubrey Krieger, receiving mental health treatment. Jan Wallen, recovering from hernia surgery. Shirley Weber from leg surgery. Mary McMiller from knee surgery. Amy Bruss in extended therapy following a stroke. Roland Cap Elke, James Loker, and Josiah Berenger in cancer treatment. Nancy Thiele in hospice care. Bring healing according to your will. Sustain them with your grace. We pray for an end to the conflict in Ukraine and for the ministry of mercy, especially that your church is called to give to those of every nation and to every refugee and those in harm's way. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, your mercies are new every morning. And though we deserve only punishment, you receive us as your children and provide for all our needs of body and soul. Grant that we may heartily acknowledge your merciful goodness give thanks for all your benefits, and serve you in willing obedience. Through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Hymn 734, stanzas 1 through 3. I trust, O Lord, your holy name. Oh, let me not be put to shame, nor let me be confounded. My faith, O Lord, be in your word forever firmly grounded. Bow down your gracious ear to me, and hear my cry, my prayer, my plea. Make haste for my protection, for woes and fear surround me here. 
Help me in my affliction. You, my strength, my shield, my rock, my fortress that withstands each shock, my help, my life, my tower, my battle sword, Almighty Lord, who can resist your power? We can turn to Matthew chapter 7 in our book, The Sermon on the Mount. Just continuing uh, a little bit of this theme. That's what Coffee Break Bible Study is, by the way, those of you who are newer. It's an opportunity to digress into questions that are on your mind. So happy to receive that. The more we talk, the more people arrive. That was good, too. Um, In the Passion According to St. Luke, if you've been following it last week and this week in the Congregation at Prayer, um, I'm fascinated always um, with my namesake, Simon Peter, especially his failings. In the Passion according to St. Luke, chapter 22, after the celebration of the Passover, the institution of the Lord's Supper, and we know from John's Gospel that there was an extended, beautiful catechesis of Jesus, including such familiar passages as, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And in my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And in this world you'll have tribulation. Be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And I am the vine. You are the branches. Apart from me you can do nothing. That's all in his catechesis on Holy Thursday night. But in Luke's Passion, you don't have the recording of that. John recorded it in his Gospel. At the conclusion of the Lord's Supper and sometime that evening before they go out to the Garden of Gethsemane, Peter says, I am ready. I am ready to go both to prison and to death for you. And Jesus says, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, strengthen your brethren. For before the rooster crows, you will deny three times that you know me. And Peter was, I have no doubt, absolutely sincere. I'm ready to go to prison. I'm ready to die. But sincerity doesn't count for much. When push came to shove, when one's physical life and comforts are threatened, and here's the lesson, people will do a lot of things they wouldn't normally do. I mean, those who turned in Jews to the Nazi authorities in the Third Reich, people who were their neighbors, members of their extended family to save their own skin. 
Wow. People did that. People will do almost anything to save their life, to maintain their comforts. And a lot of it falls under the rubric, don't rock the boat, baby. If you don't rock the boat, everything will be fine. And I'm not advocating, you know, run out and rock the boat, but sometimes there's no alternative but to stand on your confession. But we don't have that strength. Peter learned that. And he learned through suffering with his own weaknesses, total dependence upon the grace of Christ. That he actually denied when he said, I swear I don't know him, only to have that same grace of Christ that he denied be the source of his restoration. And then in the end, you know, Peter, soon after Pentecost, suffering the same kind of threat that he did in the courtyard of the high priest, before the Sanhedrin, the very Sanhedrin, when he's brought there, says, we must obey God rather than men. What a dramatic change. But the change took place and what strengthened Peter was not a newfound resolve of his own, but rather the reception of God's grace in the midst of him being, you know, utterly devastated by his own sinful weakness. And then at the end of his life, he would die a martyr's death. He would be imprisoned by the Emperor Nero and he would be crucified upside down in the city of Rome. I believe the date is 64 AD. It's the same date that the Apostle Paul was beheaded. He got the preferred method because it was quicker because he was a Roman citizen. Yep. It's gorgeous, and then Sarah May plays the violin part along with it. Cindy? Yes. But plan. Because you can't do what God has asked you to do without his. Right. You cannot do what God calls you to do apart from the grace of God that you receive. And this is where you've heard me say things. It's Pastor Wiest's. He got this from Luther, you know. But one's vocation is the cross 
upon which the old Adam is crucified. So Peter was called to be an apostle. He was called to suffer. He was called to martyrdom. And he thought he had the strength, but he did not. And in the context of his own vocation, his old Adam was crucified before he was crucified in Rome in 64 AD. Because, yeah, in order to make, this is the theology of the cross. In order to make alive, God puts to death. <laughs> That's what happens to each one of us. That's what conversion is all about. That's what repentance is, that we're put to death, death to self. That's why at the heart of repentance is no longer does one rely upon themselves, but one flees from, from self to Christ. Okay? So... All right, uh, so we have Matthew chapter 7, the continuation of the Sermon on the Mount, and it ends at the end of chapter 7. And the Sermon on the Mount, which we've been spending a lot of time with, is so, is so rich. But as I've been trying to tell you, it ties together under the theme, Forgiving Righteousness which is Christ's righteousness that covers our sin and to which we are called. It's that righteousness of which he referred in chapter 6, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's verse 33 at the end. And all these things shall be added to you. Which is not a, the it's not a prosperity gospel. Do you know what prosperity gospel is? Can anybody... If you believe in Jesus and are a faithful Christian, Mark, then you will be rich, then you will prosper in business, then your stock holdings will not be impacted by the economic unrest, you know. And you can travel around the world in your own Gulf Stream. Then you can, that's exact, you can travel around the world in your own Gulf Stream. Okay, got that? So that's, the, that's prosperity gospel where the Christian faith is used as a means to an end, to be wealthy, healthy, and wise, okay, to do what you, you want to do. No, this, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. It's all things necessary for life and salvation according to God's economy, which is what causes Paul to say those wonderful things uh, in Philippians chapter 4 where he says, I have learned in all things to be content. I know how to be abased. I know how to abound everywhere and in all things. I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That same phrase there, all things, is what you have in the Sermon on the Mount. Okay, uh, So it, it, it's not, it, the point is that to have Christ. If you have Christ, you have true, now let's go back to the uh, references to human tyranny and so forth. He who has Christ is free. Even if you're living under the Third Reich in Nazi Germany, or even if you're living under Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Empire, 
or even if you're living with your friend in China, okay, you are free because your conscience is free of sin and you belong to Christ. So I'll quote on issues today. Take they are life, goods, fame, child, wife. Let these all be gone. They yet have nothing won. The kingdom ours remaineth. So that's the perspective. You can say, who can do that? None of us can. But I can do all things, as Paul said, through Christ who strengthens me. So that's, that's the end, you know. Therefore, chill. Verse 34, you know, do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow we're worried about its own things. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Now chapter 7. Judge not, you will not be judged. Now we, we began talking about this, about judgment here is about condemning. And specks and planks in the eye about the problem of sin. And then we talked in verse 6, do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you in pieces. And this is where we stopped last week. And what is this about? Well, remember the Sermon on the Mount is both Christology, in other words, the study of Christ. He is the righteous one who's fulfilled the law and the prophets. It's also ecclesiology, which is to say a study of the church. So Jesus is delivering the Sermon on the Mount to the church, to Christians, to those who believe in him. And this is a reference already to the concept of communion fellowship, table fellowship, at the altar of the Lord. Who alone can partake of the good gifts, the pearls? Believers. Let's put one thing in front of that. Baptized believers. Okay. The, the, the sacred treasures cannot be given to the unbaptized, to the unwashed. Okay? Not that baptism makes you holy in yourself, but swine are the what kind of animals? Unclean. They're the unclean. All uncleanness is taken away by Christ. So we have baptized believers who are repentant, who flee from self-reliance to reliance upon, upon Christ. So the dogs and the swine are references to those who are not baptized, do not believe in Christ, and live in impenitence and unbelief. Now, it may include also uh, those who have been baptized but who have wandered from the faith and need to be called to repentance. Okay? They're like the dog returning to its vomit. That would be a terrible thing. Susan? Um, but the silver went out and so did seed and was wasteful. 
Yeah. There's a restriction? Okay. Do you hear her question? I'll repeat it for the recording's sake. The parable of the sower and the seed, the sower goes out and sows the seed with abandon, even in those places where it ought not to be. And this seems to say the opposite. Don't do that. Don't cast your pearls before swine. This is why I'm connecting it to the sacrament of the altar. In the history of the church since the time of the apostles, anyone and everyone, the unwashed, unbaptized, everyone, could hear the word. And they wanted them to hear the word. Excommunication in the church is practiced wrongly when the excommunicated person is shunned and not allowed to come into the service of the word to hear. Excommunication refers to out of the communion. Okay? So we want them to hear the word. And the pro excommunication is not punishment because Sheree sinned a terrible sin. Excommunication is a discipline because she's impenitent, manifestly so, and we want her to come back in repentance and faith to her baptism like the prodigal son. So the disposition of the church is like the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, or the woman searching for the coin, or the father whose attitude toward the prodigal is one of wanting to reclaim them. Okay, so does that help? There's a distinction between the preaching of the gospel for all and the giving of the sacrament to repentant Christians. In 1 Corinthians, what was the problem? There was no church discipline whatsoever in, in Corinth. And so people were coming to the Lord's Supper and getting drunk. That's not the purpose of the Lord's Supper. And it's, it's, you know, it became a cesspool. Judging by the look on your face, this is wholly unsatisfying. <laughs> Go ahead, I can take it. I could have quipped, that's the first, but no, I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> how, how do you know that what you said means it's not okay. about the Lord's Supper here? Well, you go back, what is the issue in verses 1 through 5? Judge not that you be not judged. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. With what condemnation you use, you will be judged. With the same measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Why do you look at the sin in your brother's eye and don't see the enormity of the sin in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me remove your sin? But you do not see the sin in your own eye. Hypocrite. First, Repent and confess of the enormity of your sin, and then 
you will see clearly because you're motivated by the grace of God to help your brother. Because the goal is not to condemn the brother, but to help the brother. So do not give what is holy to the dogs. Um, you are, when you, you can also look at it from this standpoint, when you refuse to live in repentant faith out of love and concern for, uh, for the brother, then you are casting away the very pearl that you have received and you're not making use of it rightly. See, here, which serves which? Does the gospel serve the law, or does the law serve the gospel? The law serves the gospel. The law serves the gospel. And when the the gospel serves the law, it's no longer the gospel, and it will tear you to pieces. Okay? Part of what Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere in the parables that he tells is he wants us to meditate upon the grace of God as opposed to teaching the faith in a very flat sort of way. You know, I could do, okay, we're all sinners. We can't save ourselves. Jesus died for our sin. Salvation is a gift of God's grace. Okay. But, which is all true, but it's a very flat way of saying it. And when he speaks this way or in parables, he jars us into thinking about the nature, particularly of the gospel, of God's grace in his work that we take for granted, don't think about, don't realize, and so forth. This, this should happen to you in sermons when all of a sudden in a new way that you never thought of before, the comfort of Christ's forgiveness is received in your heart by what you've heard. And the joy of salvation is restored and then celebrated there at the altar. (coughs) Okay, so we, we cast our pearls before swine if we would give them to the impenitent. We also cast our pearls when we do not make use of the gospel to restore and to build up and to recover the lost. Because that's the, the, the verses 1 through 5 are all about that. It's not short shrifting the problem of sin, but that, that the, the speck and the plank is not merely the problem of sin, but the danger of self-righteousness and impenitence associated with it. Okay. So even as a even as a pastor, you know, I'm 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 called to preach the law, but as a pastor who is also a sinner, <coughs> I can't preach the law in such a way that you're the sinner, Mark, but I'm not. Okay. Um, we're all in this together. <coughs> Other other questions. Forgiving righteousness. That's right, the forgiving that's, righteousness. That's pretty much the sum, summation here. And the question, what does, that, what does this mean? 
Okay? And so it's the forgiving righteousness which for us as Christians motivates us even in our relationships with one another. It motivates us in our relationship with the world. It motivates us in our relationship with the civil authority that may be out to destroy us. Okay? That's why we're all prone to it, but when I say things like not being motivated out of anger, anytime we are motivated out of anger, and we're all motivated out of anger at various times in our lives, it's never a good thing. It must be checked. I know there's such a thing as righteous anger, but even the righteous anger of a father with his children so often goes too far. So he's on about this still. Ask, and it will be given to you. Now, what are you asking for? Seek, and you will find. What are you seeking? In the context of what we talked about, specks and planks, and the uncleanness of being swine or dogs. Asking for what? Forgiveness. Seeking what? Forgiveness. Knocking on the door of heaven for what? For everyone who asks for what? Forgiveness. And he who seeks for what? Forgiveness. And to him who knocks for what? Forgiveness. They will receive and they will find and it will be open to them. Or what man is there among you if his son asks for bread will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in, who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Now the good things, if you, I want to go ahead and cross-reference this to another place where Jesus speaks almost identical words. It's Luke chapter 11. After the giving of the Lord's Prayer... In Luke 11, you have verses 5 through 8, that wonderful story of the friend at midnight who badgers his neighbor to death, (laughs) drives him crazy to get bread until he finally opens up the door. And though the friend was not motivated out of friendship, but out of getting rid of his midnight caller, He did get out of bed. Is that how God is motivated? No. And then in verse 9, I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Notice how it's almost identical to what you have in Matthew. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will he give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will he give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will he offer him a scorpion? The answer is no, 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 no. If you then, being evil, same construction, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give? Now, instead of good gifts, it's the Holy Spirit. Which doesn't mean in Matthew's gospel he's talking about something entirely different. Good gifts like, oh, I'd like a new car. Ooh, I'd like a new house. Ooh, I'd like a boat on a lake up north. No, no. The good things are the good things the good and perfect gifts that come down from heaven. The hallowing of God's name, the coming of his kingdom, his good and gracious will being done, faith to receive daily bread, forgiveness of our trespasses, deliverance from temptation and the evil one, 
Those are the good things. And they're all wrapped up at what is at the center of the Lord's Prayer, the forgiving righteousness of Christ. Remember, this is still chapter numbers don't mean that this is an entirely new thought. It's in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, verses 9 through 13, that you have the Lord's Prayer. So in so many ways, what follows after that, including do not worry about your life, where, what you will eat or what you will put on, nor about your, uh, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. What petition of the Lord's Prayer is that amplifying? Fourth petition, give us this day our daily bread. Okay. Um, the worry that is associated with idolatry. Hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. So all of those, all of those things for which we pray in the Lord's Prayer, he's addressing here, including the fifth petition, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Remember I said that is a... You know, that's like a communion statement. That's what we do in the divine service. We let go of the sins one of another. If we hold on to grudges, if we hold on to hurts, and maybe the person has hurt us, but if we hold on to that and don't let go of it in the forgiving righteousness of Christ, it's injurious to our communion fellowship. So ask, you will receive. Seek, you will find. Now, that means you're asking for a repentant heart. You're asking for the grace of Christ to let go of those hurts, to set them aside. You'll never, you'll never be in the wrong if you live in forgiveness toward your enemy. Never. But you will injure your soul if you insist Blankety blanket, I've got a right to that. You're going to pay, Bruss. You're going to pay. If that's my disposition, it will destroy me before it destroys John, but it won't do much service to John either. Shall we, though, however, shall we unravel all the ways in which you and I have sinned against each other over the years, Cherie? Oh, my Cherie? goodness. How many years have we known each other? Fifteen or Oh, so. my goodness gracious. We better <laughs> sit down. Because if there's going to be reconciliation between us, we've got to be able yeah. to chronicle all right. of this. Yep. Yep. Oh, Kyrie liaison. Okay, can't do it. I, I think there's probably... There are few things for which I've caught more flack over the history of my ministry than the phrase, let go of the sins of others against you. But they didn't confess. <laughs> they didn't ask me for forgiveness. Yeah. Okay. So, so this is so this is all of a, all of a piece. Then. Go ahead. The the coveting. I mean, sorry. The expecting the pound of flesh or insisting upon retribution or any of those things isn't that a form of coveting too? Because yeah. you want your. You want your life to be perfect, and it's not perfect because somebody offended you. It is, it, is, it is based in works righteousness. It's a mark of impenitence, and it's a contradiction of what was said at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. Do not think I came to destroy the law. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. So if I forgive you and let go of your sins and you do the same for me, well, then you're, you're denying the law. 
because that was the accusation against Jesus. Yeah, but the law is only the showing. Well, is, I mean, the, the law doesn't only show the problem okay. of sin, because the law does describe what is good. That's why it shows us to be sinners, because we are not good according to the standard of the law, but Christ is. Okay? And he is the one who fulfills the law chiefly, not only by his active obedience, but by his passive obedience on the cross. Okay? And that's the forgiveness of sins, this is what I said in the sermon yesterday about preaching, 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 preaching. The forgiveness of sins is really the only message that the pastor has. And, and, and if we pursued that in repentance and faith as the one thing we need more than anything else, it would actually order our relationships and bring healing to, and reconciliation and so forth. Polly? Yeah. Petrina? So you pray, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. I, I and you commend it to God who judges righteously. I want to help them, but you know, they can't accept my word. God is going to have to fix them. You can't fix them. You can only do what you're given to do. What's the matter with you? You won't accept my forgiveness. Or you won't forgive me. That's not going to get you very far. Okay, so, verse 12, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Now, that phrase, remember Matthew chapter 5, do not, verse 17, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. So, this is the law and the prophets. Okay, Cherie, what do you want men to do to you. Treat think, me nice. Treat you nice? I don't know. Forgive me again. Yeah. Uh, as a Christian, right. I, yeah. if, I have, if I have your forgiveness, mm -hmm. our relationship is good. Mm -hmm. Isn't it? Mm -hmm. And if you have mine. Mm -hmm. True. It's true. It's true. I mean, if... if Whatever you would have men to do for you. If, if Barry wants to give me 500 bucks, yeah, I might take it. But that doesn't necessarily mean our relationship is good. Maybe he's, after, he's trying to bribe me to do something or whatever. But forgiveness of sins. If I have your forgiveness and you have mine, which we have from Christ, then all is good. There's no more beautiful thing than to, to work with troubled couples who are married and to bring them to the point where each can say, I have sinned, I'm sorry, will you forgive me for Jesus' sake? And she does. And she says the same thing to him, and he does. And together they rejoice in that forgiveness. That's touchdown, victory. Say, so whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate. And the narrow gate is that forgiving righteousness of Christ. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are so many ways in which belief in the law 
and self-righteousness can destroy us. It's a wide road, and there are many who go by it, because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it, because it is found only in Christ. All right, wanted to get to that point today. Uh, Jim Nietzsche's funeral is Saturday. Visitation here from 10 till noon, service at noon. And Mary Ellen said, I know it's a Christmas hymn, but can, can we sing, O Jesus Christ, thy manger is? So, as you know, that hymn is never denied, those who wish for it. <laughs> okay, the grace of our Lord Jesus be with you all.